my dad was out jogging, and, uh, and I wanted to go with him. I was much, much, much littler at the time and couldn't keep up with my father, a football coach, as he was, was out, uh, out running. And so I was on my bicycle, and we were there on Crawford Street, and we're, we're heading down the street, and we came up to an intersection, and Dad came running up to the intersection, and I came uh, barreling past on my bicycle, and I was just fully intent to jump the curve and to go right out in the street. My dad reached over and grabbed a hold of me, and grabbing the only thing he could, basically pulling me off the back of my bicycle. My bicycle rolls on out into the street, and I was all concerned because my bike was going to get run over, and Dad explained to me that, well, we can get another bicycle. But the car that was barreling toward that intersection did end up stopping, but we had no way of knowing that. And I was thinking about that particular occasion. It was not pleasant. I was not happy with the way that it happened. Uh, It's not comfortable that my father would have to manhandle me in such a way to make sure that I was safe. But what he did was he took care of me in an effective way. It was not as I necessarily would have, have described or chosen, but he took care of me in a real and an effective way. Well, you go back uh, several years before that, and um, I have vague recollections of this because I was tiny, 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 but it was a traumatic event. I uh, was sitting there and had a great big piece of hard candy. And now, any of you who have sat down and had a meal with me, you understand I'm the oldest of three boys, um, but I'm really depending on you know, height and what we're wearing, maybe the shortest and the smallest of the three boys. And, well, you just got to eat quick or you don't eat. And even when I was an only child, I had a tendency to eat rather quick and pop this big hard candy in my mouth and uh, didn't bother sucking on it, didn't bother chewing on it, just decided to swallow it apparently. Next thing I know, apparently I was turning all sorts of very lovely shades of blue but I have a hard time imagining this, but my mom grabbing me by my ankles and shaking me to get this piece of hard candy dislodged. Not a very sweet way for your mother to embrace you. (laughs) Not that kind of motherly affection that I was looking for, but an effective way of demonstrating concern, compassion, and love. I think she'd have a hard time doing that today. So I'll make sure to chew my food well at lunch. What we're dealing with as we continue to work our way through the doctrines of grace, we come to one that we refer to as irresistible grace. Uh, We'll talk about exactly what that means, but I, I, I do think there's some wonderful ways that we can speak of it other than irresistible grace or effective, invincible, uncommon, real, and amazing grace uh, that does really effectively and totally transform us for God's glory. Now, the reason we need that is that we are a wickedly rebellious people. We've talked about that as we talked about the doctrine of depravity. Stephen, in a sermon in Acts chapter 6, he he speaks in in a way that people needed to hear, though they didn't want to hear it. They, They needed to be snatched back from the brink of destruction. They needed to be shaken to dislodge that which was choking them out. When he spoke to them, he said, You are a stiff necked people and uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears. You are resisting the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers did. You see, that's how we're born. That's that's who we are when we're born, that we do rebel against God. We resist God. The question comes then: how does a wicked A rebellious people come to follow the true Savior. How do stubborn, stiff-necked, depraved people 
come to salvation? And, and the answer is God changes us. God has to change us. And He does so in a real and an effective way. Give you another little Bible illustration before we get to the text at hand. You think about Lazarus. You recall Lazarus? He died. Mary and Martha were so distraught because Jesus just didn't get there fast enough. He said, if you'd been here on time, you could have done something about this. And like the old spiritual said, and the pastor preaching on it afterwards said, the Lord may not get here when you want Him to, but He always gets here on time. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, and there, as He saw the need, and as Jesus wept along with Mary and Martha, what did He do? He didn't apply a halfway solution. He didn't, he didn't provide a, a partial demonstration of love. What He did was He singularly applied an effective calling to Lazarus when He said, Lazarus, come forth. It was not an opportunity that was presented before Lazarus. <clears throat> it was a real and an effective application of the power of God to take Lazarus who is dead and make him alive. Turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 36. It's one of the, uh, uh, the verses that I mentioned to the children as we were talking about my jar of rocks up here that apparently won't grow marigolds. It's a wonderful promise of God. Uh, a, a promise of God through the, uh, the prophet of, of things to expect, especially when we looked as an anticipation of Jesus. We're in Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to begin reading in verse 28. I invite you to, to follow along. It's on page 724 in your pew Bible if you'd like to read there. But please, take it in through your eyes as, as you also do so through your ears. This is God's holy, inerrant, perfect, wonderful word. He says, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. And there, there I will sprinkle water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and take from all of your idols. And uh, cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Lord, may it fall upon the soft, fertile, rich soil of our hearts. Lord, may it not be choked out by weeds. May it not be starved out by rocks. But Lord, may it find root and change us as it grows within us, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about the five points that we call the doctrines of grace. They are doctrines of grace because it is by grace we have been saved by faith, that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And in these five points we've been talking about, we see our sin and how much we need God utterly, dependent upon God. But we also see that there is a sufficient and complete work of Jesus by which we are saved. It's not just a potential that's placed before us. It's not just one of many options set in front of us. It is indeed the full and effective work of God for our salvation that we see in Jesus. 
We see the Holy Spirit working today. In particular, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit working to affect our salvation. That is, to call us in a real and an effective way. And then we also know that by God's strength, the one who is at work in us to will and to do for His good pleasure, that God who began a work in us will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ. That is, that we who have been saved by grace shall endure by grace, and we shall know heaven because of God's glory and grace. We remember these points. We talk about the word tulip, total depravity of man, the unconditional election by God, the limited atonement, the particular atonement of God. Today we're talking about the irresistible grace of God. And the last point we'll bring up next will be the perseverance of the saints. That is, those who are saved shall endure to the end. And keep in mind this as we open the Word. We're not simply picking and choosing verses to prove a system. We want to read the Bible for what it says, even if it's difficult and hard. We want to study, preach, teach, and live the Bible based on what it says and not on what we want it to say. It's a tough distinction. We tend to build up idols and use biblical words to sustain it. But they must be torn down, as we see here in Ezekiel, tearing down those idols and having soft hearts to hear the Word of God. So we talk today about this idea of irresistible grace, effective grace, real working grace. We have to talk about this. We have to begin with a definition of grace. Now, some of you, as I bring up grace, are saying, that's a good idea, preacher. Let's go ahead and say grace because it's about lunchtime. That's where we end up using the word so often. Would somebody like to say grace? Well, it is by grace that we're fed each day. God gives us delicious fare. God gives us food. It all could be paste without taste. But indeed, it, God gives us wonderful, uh, rich, delicious food. It's His grace that He pours out on us lavishly. And so we speak to God's gracious provision when we say grace. But grace is so much more than that. Grace is unmerited favor. It's that we would know the favor of God and know that there was nothing that we did to earn that. Grace is God smiling upon us when really we ought to only know His frown. Grace is God's riches given to us when we didn't deserve it. It's God's free action for the benefit of His people. Wonderful way to remember that. And I'm a simple-minded man. And, and, and remembering things uh, with, with words and, and illustrations and pictures and all, or acrostics are a great way of doing that. Uh, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that a wonderful thing to consider that which we have. God's riches, that is, He who is able to do, He who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, He who spoke all things into existence, God who is an has everything, pours out His riches to us. And how was that earned? It was earned by Jesus. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so we we see this passage here talking about how is that made ours? How has that become uh, the truth of our lives? And we go back to this promise of Ezekiel looking in anticipation of Jesus, talking about the idea, well, it all gets down to the fact that you have to have a new heart. Because you know, your heart can be that inhospitable. Nothing but a jar of gravel. Nothing but rocks in which seeds can't even, can't even reach in there. They can't get any nourishment. They can't get any moisture. They can't dig their roots in. There's nothing that can be done. Our hearts can be just that way. 
We have to be given new hearts. We have to have divine cardiac surgery. The Lord, as we read here in Ezekiel, says, I'm going to take that heart of stone and I'm going to put that heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is better. For it moves and it beats. And in it we have life. Nowhere will you find that description to say, so here's what you need to do. You need to go out and acquire for yourself a new heart. Scripture is never going to tell us, you need to go out and to uh, do these particular things in order to transform your heart from a state of stoniness to a state of fleshiness. It says, I will give you, look at that, verse 25, right there in the midst of what we, 26, right in the midst of what we just read, I will give you a new heart. What else? I will, I will put a new spirit in you. What else? I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. What else? I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And then what? It says, then you will keep my judgments and do them. It is the idea that, that God does this and he does it in a real and effective way. So we speak about grace. That is what God does for us and what He gives us. And He does it. He does it in a, in a real way, not just in a potential way. Now, we talk about the call of God. The call of God uh, comes into consideration when we think about this idea about the grace by which we're saved that we are called by God into that condition of salvation. And there are two ways. Scripture speaks of two ways that we are called. One is considered an outward call. It's the call of preaching. It's the call of the proclaiming of the Word. And you know what? We're called to do that lavishly, to sow the seeds abundantly. How shall the people know and believe unless they hear? And how shall they hear unless the Word is preached? And how shall it be preached unless they're sent? We read about that in Romans where we see the idea that we are to go and to take the gospel into all the world. Matthew 28, that we are in our going uh, to preach the gospel, teaching others, making disciples, baptizing. This is, this is our call. This is the outward call of the gospel. And you know what? We sow that seed lavishly. We've got so much more seeds than I have in my pocket here in that little marigold packet. We've been given the, the seed of the word that we are to scatter to scatter across the land everywhere that we go. That's the outward call of the gospel. The outward call of the gospel is the preaching of His Word. And we share the gospel with others, but not all those who hear will be saved. That ought to make us sad. We ought to, we ought to be troubled by that. And the solution to that, indeed, is to pray for the Lord of the harvest, that He would, he would take those seeds and make them to be productive in, in the lives of those who hear it, but to continue to sow the seed. The farmer is a bad farmer who sows the seed, they don't grow, and so he stops and says, uh, I guess I'm just not going to farm. I guess I'm just not going to eat. My family and I are going to starve. I'm going to stop sowing seed. No, we sow seed. We sow seed again. We water. We continue to work the soil. We continue to persevere in the work of the outward call of the gospel. But there is the very real inward call of the gospel. The inward call of God is His secret work. It's the work of regeneration. That's what's spoken of here that moment in which God takes that heart of stone and extracts it for it does us no good. It only does us harm. And He gives us a heart of flesh. That is a mind to understand, ears to hear, and a spirit to embrace the truth as it's proclaimed. 
God places within us a desire for Him. That Romans 3 tells us there's no one who seeks after God. There's nobody that wants God. But the truth is, when He gives us this new heart of flesh, we do desire the things of God. And that's how our Savior can say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever it is you desire and it shall be given to you. Because our new heart of flesh desires the things of God. That's the inward call of the gospel. It's a very real thing and it's a very effective thing. You see, the doctrine of irresistible grace, the doctrine of effective grace is this. It means that God is sovereign and He overcomes all of our resistance. He does according to His will. Daniel chapter 4 says, He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand. What God does is He undertakes to fulfill His sovereign purposes. And we can't resist that. He changes our heart. Reading in Ezekiel, we talk about the, uh, the promises of God. There's a promise of God that I, I love to go back and read. As you, you look at the unfolding of God's promise to Abraham, that's in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17. There's an occasion where, where uh, uh, God takes Abraham outside. And imagine again, uh, you're sitting there in the, uh, the ancient Near East. You had no city lights to distract. You had uh, no neighboring city to, to blur out the heavens. And just to be in the pitch black darkness of the desert and to gaze up at the heavens and to see the vastness of the stars. I don't know how many of you have been in such a dark place, whether it be the ocean and the woods and the forest and the farms and desolate places to look and to see how brilliant the heavens are. But that was a moment that God took Abraham out and he says, you see all the stars? Do you think you can begin to number them, Abraham? Certainly not. He says, so shall your descendants be. A promise of God given that more than the stars in the heaven would be those who would claim the promises of God as given through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, fulfilled in Jesus. That was a promise of God, not wishful thinking, not a a, a statement of God saying, if you do your part, then this can be a possible outcome. It was God saying, this is what will happen. Why? Because God makes it to happen. And how does He do that? Through the effective call to sinners. He changes our heart. This is what Paul teaches in in Romans chapter 9. He asks the question, Romans chapter 9, verse 14. You can flip over there with me in the New Testament. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. He uses an unflattering metaphor uh, to speak to us, particularly about how God crafts us and and molds us into what He desires us to be. Romans chapter 9, we, we see this, this question that Paul raises that would be on all of our minds as he's talking about the work of God bringing about salvation. He says in verse 14, Why then does God still find fault? For who can resist His will? Paul answers, he says, Then who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for menial use? It's the Lord that He crafts us, He changes us, He shapes us, He makes us to be what He desires us to be. And this is how He brings about salvation in His people. So, we, we look at this, we think about this doctrine and you say, okay, I see it. I see how God does change us. 
God does it effectively. God does it in a real way. But let's talk about how that changes our lives. Let's talk about how we take this and make tomorrow a day more spent for God's glory. How do we use this truth to inspire us to be more like Jesus? Well, first off, one of the implications is that we are to make that outward call of the gospel boldly, widely, without exception. We are called to preach the gospel to all without exception. We don't pick and choose who we think should hear the gospel. We don't pick and choose who we think would respond to the gospel because God, who is able to do immeasurably more than we can hope or imagine, is the one who can change the vilest heart, the worst of offenders. We need to preach the gospel to everyone and not stop. We need to sow seeds liberally. Secondly, we need to understand the gospel cannot be embraced without faith. The gospel cannot be embraced without faith. That gives us, it, it, gives us, uh, it gives us a peace as we struggle. You see, there, there is this, this implication, if, if God does not change hearts, if it is about us persuading others, uh, then there can be a real guilt. There can be a, a guilt that's oppressive as we sit back and think, this person uh, would receive the gospel if I just, if I just weren't so bad at it, if, if, if I was a better evangelist. But we need, we, need to, we need to certainly proclaim the gospel with clarity. We need to proclaim it with excellence. We need to proclaim it with joy and with strength. But we need to understand that God has to make that work in their life. And so we put all of our confidence, all of our faith, all of our trust in Him that He will give that gift of faith. And that faith comes from God alone. Christians, let me make a a strong statement here. Salvation is of God. A person will not desire the things of God if God doesn't change his heart. But I think we as Christians sin greatly. We sin greatly when we don't proclaim the gospel as freely and lavishly as that message deserves to be proclaimed. We don't know when God's going to work. We don't know within whom God is going to work, but we do know God is going to work. And, and we can take two different approaches to that. One is we can just treat it with ambivalence and, and, and say, well, somebody else will do it. Or if God wants it done, He'll see to it that it's done. Or just out of laziness that we, we, we don't do, or fear, or apathy, whatever it is, we don't proclaim the gospel as we should. But we sin when we do not proclaim the gospel freely, when we don't proclaim it lavishly, and lovingly, and consistently, and gratefully. That's how we have been called to tell other people about Jesus. And to trust that the Lord will make those seeds to grow. Here's the funny thing about, about those, those seeds. The seeds, you know, we can do lots of things with seeds. We can plant them. We can, I'm, I'm sitting there in the burns there. They seem to, God has blessed them with, with not just green thumbs, but green index fingers and pinkies and big toes and everything. And, you know, I, I can kill a plastic plant. I mean, but here's one thing. Even skilled farmers and gardeners, they really can't make a seed grow. 
You put it in the right soil. You water it. You care for it. You tend it. You repeat the process. You stay on it. You're consistent. You're persistent. It's the Lord that makes the seed to grow. And the same thing with the gospel. It's the Lord who makes it to work. But we have been called to be faithful in doing so. The implications of this particular gospel, personally, that's how we ought to be living and going forth as proclaiming the gospel. Personally, here's some things. This is a doctrine that ought to make us humble, happy, and bold. It ought to make us humble, happy, and bold. Humble due to the fact that I didn't save myself. I didn't save myself. I can't stand and boast and say, oh wow, you folks need to be smart like me and choose Jesus because I know I did. And claim that for my own credit. I didn't save myself. The Lord, for His own reasons, loved me when I was not lovable. It ought to make us happy as we understand the Lord's love for us. God loved me so much that He did not leave this most critical thing up to me. He changed my heart. It ought to make us bold. But the salvation of the world does not fall based on my weaknesses. Indeed, it succeeds in spite of them. This is the gospel message that we go to proclaim a God who loves us enough to take that old wretched heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. If this is the day that you say, my heart has been stony for years. I've only known the stoniness of my heart. And the gospel, though I've heard it, has fallen on ground that has been inhospitable. Today, though, I desire to know this Lord Jesus, one who has loved me enough to change me effectually and permanently, then let it be known. Speak to someone as you come to church here with today. Come and talk with me. Do not let this day go by that you do not cry out to God and say, thank you, Lord God, for loving me in this way. Pray with me. Almighty and glorious God, we thank you. We thank you that you have taken this eternally significant and most pressing of matters and that you have wrought it in an effective way. Thank you, Lord God, for loving me in a real way. Thank you, Lord God, for changing our lives in significant ways, Lord, that our hearts, our hearts would respond to your word, our hearts would understand, our hearts would embrace, and our hearts would then proclaim through our lives, Father, the truth by which we're saved. Lord, may we have hearts full of compassion for the lost, May we have a boldness of taking a gospel that we know that you will effectually apply. Lord, may we proclaim your gospel boldly, knowing that our weakness will not hinder your work from being done. Lord, we praise you for this day, and we ask, Almighty God, that we would give you the glory in our salvation for our lives and for eternity. May it be Jesus Christ and Christ alone who is seen, heard, loved, and adored today and for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.